0: Good evening. We're going to be in Galatians three. We're going through the book of Galatians uh, tonight. We're going to be in Galatians three. There's Bibles under your seats. A lot of you guys have apps. If it's easier for you, we're just going to throw up the verses on the screen. If that's if that's easier for you to process, um, I'm also going to tell you a story right now. Um, this is a true story. Uh, it is uh, it's an interesting interesting true story. Um, let me go ahead let me go ahead and warn some of you guys because you're going to hear the story and you think. Ah, the end of it, you're going to be like, oh, that was an interesting story. I wouldn't tell you a non-interesting story. I'm not hateful. Uh, I wouldn't waste your time. Um, but you're going to think, oh, that's an interesting story. And some of you who are in a good critical mind are going to think, wait, what was the point of that story? So stay with me, and then I'm going to do this cute thing at the end where we bring it all back together, okay? So uh, just stay with me. Um, uh, this is a story about the time that my brother, my real brother, Aaron, um, this is a time that my brother uh, did drugs, got naked, and he shot a cop. Um, yes, a gasp is appropriate, because all of those things are illegal. Um, (laughs) Shooting cops is obviously illegal, getting naked uh, in public is illegal, and the drugs that he did are illegal. Uh, When he was 23, my brother did shrooms, and if you've ever done shrooms, or if you know somebody who has done shrooms, shrooms are hallucinogenic, and so uh, Aaron started just tripping, is what it's called, really bad, And, um, and was just out of his mind, and he had uh, what happened was his trip was so severe that um, as a 23-year-old, he, he lived um, off University of North Texas campus, just right there south of George Bush Freeway, and he, his reality changed. And what happened was he thought, because of drugs, that he thought that he was in a dream, like kind of a matrix thing was going on, where he was in this dream, and the only way to wake himself up from that dream was to kill himself. And so at the point that that becomes your reality, that's just... Crazy dangerous. Uh, So my brother uh, at 23, um, on drugs, out of his mind, believing a false perspective, decided I've got to kill myself to wake myself up from this dream that I'm stuck in. Uh, And by the grace of God, he doesn't have a gun or an easy way to do that, except he lived like two blocks south of a freeway. And so it's like 2 a.m. in the morning, and it's dark outside, and so he decides I'm going to go run in front of traffic on George Bush Freeway. And at some point, he also decided to take off his clothes. I'm not sure where that happened and what was going on. Clearly, he's out of his mind. Um, so he is then running down the street northbound towards George Bush Freeway. And by the grace of God, and I'm going to talk about the grace of God a lot tonight, but by the grace of God, there happens to be a cop within those two blocks that pulled out onto a street. And by the grace of God, because he wasn't wearing any clothes, obviously, the cop is like, okay, this is not a normal jogging situation. <laughs> So, so the cop pulls out in front of him and my brother, still out of his mind, decides, oh, this is going to be so much easier than running in front of traffic. So he starts yelling at the cop, kill me, kill me, kill me, just shoot me because he's tired of running anyway and it would have been way more work to do that. So please, just, just kill me. And so he starts yelling at this cop and the cop is yelling at him to get on the ground, get on the ground, and obviously doing his job really well, trying to manage the situation. And my brother charges the police officer at 2 a.m., and tries to get the gun out of the holster to kill himself. And so he's wrestling with the cop, and he's on his knees, and the cop's hitting him with the stick, doing what he should have done, uh, and the gun goes off in the cop's holster. And the bullet goes through the bottom of the holster, and it ricochets off of a pocket knife that was a non-regulation knife that the cop shouldn't have even had on his person. It ricochets off of the buckle on that pocket knife, and the bullet sticks in the ground, rather than ripping through this cop's leg. About the same time, later in my brother's trial, you can see the cop was reaching for a, a second revolver to use deadly force on my brother, which I love my brother, but if I were that cop, I wouldn't have blamed him for using deadly force. I mean, he, he doesn't know where the situation is, he doesn't know who has control the gun, adrenaline is pumping, and so before this cop has a chance to shoot my brother in the head, uh, another police officer had arrived at the scene, tackles Aaron, they pepper spray him, they handcuff him. He wakes up in a hospital bed, handcuffed to a hospital bed the next day, and then slowly over the course of the next few days puts together what happened the night before. He got charged with assault on a public civil servant, which is 5 to 99 years. He pled deferred a which is where you waive your trial of peers, and you stand before a judge. Um, and you can't appeal that, so whatever the judge says goes. Uh, it was a year-long process before his trial actually happened when he was 24 years old. And the judge looked at him and gave him three months in jail, uh, and then he was on probation for 10 years. He got off probation a few years ago. He's 37 now, uh, 36 or 37 now. Um, God used that night in my brother's life in incredible ways, and I'm going to talk about that at the end. But the man that my brother is now, Is an incredibly godly man, freed from sin patterns that he was stuck in back then when he was 21, 22, 23. Uh, He is super involved in his church. He serves there. He has an incredible wife. He loves the Lord. He is a part of building the kingdom of God in some incredible ways, partly because and largely because God used this event in his life as a 23 year old. and I'm going to get to some of the significance of that later. But one of the things that I want us to see before we jump into Galatians 3 is Aaron, my brother, was, had a false perspective. Right? I mean, to say the least, he was living a reality that was not really a reality. He had a false perspective about what was going on, what reality was, what, who he was, how life was supposed to work. He believed this lie, and because of that, he made all of these actions happen because of a false reality. <clears throat> watch this segue. What we believe about who God is, how we interact with him, how we're saved, how this kingdom works, how this world works, our theology, fancy, sexy word for knowing God, how we know God. It it dictates so many other things we do, how we interact with the truth of this book's reality, that it's going to present us, that I would argue the Holy Spirit is going to present us as conviction in our life at times. How we interact with that, how we wrap our minds around that correctly, dictates those actions. Paul is talking to a group of people who have lost their mind and perspective. They have lost a fundamental truth, and because of that, they're headed for death. They have lost sight of this thing that is so epically important to understand that Paul shared with them, and now the gospel they have forgotten and distorted and walked away from and added and perverted. And that is what the book of Galatians is walking us through. And we've been in the last two chapters over the last four or five weeks. We've, we've spent the last four or five weeks in the first two chapters. Tonight we hit chapter three. Chapter three is, um, chapter three is the culmination of the first half of the book. It's really the peak of Paul's argument. So here's what we're going to see. Paul has seen these people he loves. He's seen them lose perspective, and he peaks in his frustration for where they're headed and, and where the belief, the lie that they believe is going to send them to. And So what we're going to see in this passage is we're going to see Paul then, he's going to make an airtight case for why we should believe this truth. The truth of the gospel, which I'm going to walk us through here in a second. The truth of the gospel, he's going to make this airtight case in this, in this chapter of Galatians. And then he's going to talk about how we get that truth. So here's his airtight case for why we need to believe it correctly, and then here's how we get it. And then we're going to end tonight by talking about, okay, what do we right now do with that, walking out of this room uh, in response to that. So chapter 3. I'm also excited, too, the next few weeks, uh, we're just going to kick it in high gear Chapters 4, 5, and 6, which is the second half of Galatians, we're going to mow through. And it's going to be all application. Three chapters, Paul writes this letter of building and explaining and unpacking and new nuances. And it's this beautiful thing for three chapters. And then you hit chapters 4, 5, and 6. And it's all all this fruit that should come from that belief, that framework of what the gospel is. So before we throw the scripture up on the board, let's unpack where he's been for two chapters. The gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, how we become in a right relationship with the God of the universe, a holy, perfect, eternal God, how we become okay with that. We as broken sinners, he is a perfect and holy God, is through the grace of God. It's by our faith in recognizing we cannot earn that. It's by our faith in recognizing I cannot do enough good deeds, show up to enough church services, sing enough Christian songs, and, and keep the list of do's and avoid the list of don'ts that I'm supposed to do as a Christian. I can't do enough to earn that. And if you're here for the first time or if this is the first time at least this is clicking and you're hearing that, that is the gospel that these guys are wrestling with, that we still wrestle with. So often we think it's about religion and we think, yeah, i got to do these things, clean myself up. No. Paul says, no, 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 that's not the gospel. The gospel is you're broken, you're dead in your sin, and God entered into that brokenness and saved you. And your part is to put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, to enter into that relationship by saying, "Ah, I can't do this, I can't earn it, I can't strive hard enough, I can't work hard enough and just grit my teeth. I'm gonna surrender to Jesus Christ. I'm gonna submit my life to Jesus Christ. Whatever that looks like is gonna be different for a lot of people, but it, it looks like what we talked about last week. Paul says he's crucified with Christ. It looks like, hey, my life is not my own, man. I'm dead with Christ, and now I'm alive in him. When he died and buried my old self, and now my life is his, it looks like surrender to him. But it is by grace that we are saved, not works. That's what they're struggling with. That's what I, as a pastor, continue to struggle with, um, and that's certainly what these people that Paul is writing to were struggling with, back and forth, thinking I've gotta earn it, I've gotta add to it. So here we go verse one of chapter three. It'll be up on the screen. <laughs> Paul's frustrated. He starts this way. He says, oh foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish having begun Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So that's what they're doing. They're they're taking the gospel of grace, that God has said, I love you where you are. It is by my grace that you are saved. I'm giving you my Spirit as you submit your life you put your faith in Jesus Christ. I'm going to bless you with my spirit. And the Galatians are like, yes, this is awesome. This is incredible. And then people come along and they say, oh, well, yeah, that's, that's the gospel of how you get in the door. Right? That's how you get into Christianity. But if you really want to become varsity level Christianity, you've got to add to it. You've got to do this and do this. And, you got to, and at this time, there were all these ceremonies that were attached to Judaism at the time. And you've got to keep all these ceremonies. You've got to be circumcised. You've got to... Follow all these rules and there was this, there was this add-on that was going to that that was really what was going to grow you. We do this all the time. We're guilty of it. I talked about this last week, talked about it last week because it was also in Galatians 2, because it's a really big deal to Paul and it's a really big trap for us. We think the gospel is just the door so often. And we think, okay, yeah, the gospel is the thing that, like, I put my faith in Jesus when I was a kid, but now, like, I need something. No, our depth and maturity comes from just better understanding the gospel. So if you're new to your faith and you basically have just got the concept of, oh, my gosh, God loves me where I'm at. My role is to surrender to him and his grace covers me, then you are in a prime spot for growth. A lot of times it's the guys like me who grew up in church, got fed the right answers, that we've decided, well, I've got to add to it. Tim Keller says the gospel, the gospel is not just the ABCs of the Christian life, it's the A through Z. It's the A through Z. And so we look at the work of Jesus Christ and we apply it to everything in our life. We apply it to our struggles, we apply it to uh, other relationships, we apply it to all those things and and. We're going to talk about some of the real specific things uh, at the end of this. But that's, that's the struggle. It's, it's not just the beginning, right? Even verse 3, he says, Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit? Now you're being perfected by the flesh? That doesn't even make sense. It's not just the door. It's, it's our path to maturity as believers. Just a deeper understanding of it. So verse 6, he says, let me prove it. Let me prove to you why it's not just... Um, Faith is the beginning, and then you got to do works. Verse 6, he brings in the argument of Abraham. He says, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. So what Paul is doing is he's referencing old Abraham, who's back here in the beginning of the Bible in the Old Testament talked about. Father Abraham, and he had many sons, and he was this big deal. And he's like the beginning of the old, like the Judaism line, was this man Abraham and this covenant that God had with him. And he's saying, hey, remember Abraham? who's a really big deal in in the faith, God said in the Old Testament, he said, hey, you are saved, Abraham, not because you're a bad A and you're you're just knocking out of the park. You're saved. You're saved by your faith in me. You're saved by grace through faith. That's how you're saved, Abraham. So Paul is saying, dude, even the founder of our faith wasn't saved by the law, the list of things. He was saved by, by faith. Paul admits that this salvation, um, he, he says, hey, here's this evidence, and look what he, he says, he elaborates, then the genealogy, what's, what's going to flow out of Abraham. Verse 7, "'Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, and the Scripture, foreseeing what God would just, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, "'In you shall all the nations be blessed.'" So then those who are of faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. Okay, I gotta say a couple things. One, probably should have said this at the beginning. Um, There's a lot. There is a lot of really good stuff in chapter three of Galatians, pretty much any page you turn to in this book, but um, there's a lot of stuff here. And I wanna make sure that I'm doing a good job just as a shepherd and encourager to you guys. Uh, Our goal at Renovate is, man, I'm gonna study at Josh or whoever's preaching is gonna study and say, Lord, what would you have for us tonight? There's so much stuff here that we're not gonna have time to unpack all of. My hope is that you're not just depending on this sermon once a week or maybe a sermon on Sunday or Wednesday to get fully fed from the word. My hope is that you would continue to dig in to this book all the other days of the week, that you would get in a home group and corporately go through, hey, man, what did you see? Oh, and what about this section? And yeah, let's dig in together. And let's. And then what do we observe God doing here? And how does that apply to our life? And, um, and so there's a lot of stuff in this chapter that we're going to say, Lord, what is, what is the overall big principle that Paul is writing about the gospel to us? But I just, I almost grieve at the fact that I don't have like nine hours to preach this sermon. Um, I promise it's going to be like half that, guys. So um, <laughs> you're in good shape. So I just want that to always be something that's in the back of your mind that like, hey, we're going to tackle texts and there's always more to a text. There will always be, even if we just preach one verse, I'm not confident in myself or Josh or Tyler or Ted or whoever's preaching to you that like, oh man, the riches of all of scripture. Keep digging and working, right? We're cool on that? If you're cool with that, then that makes me feel better. Um, (laughs) It's not all on me. Okay, um, let's understand what's going on here. Um. So, Abraham, Old Testament, New Testament. So, I'm going to walk through a little timeline here by, um, by Chike's midget keyboard over here. Is it that you couldn't afford a full keyboard? Is that what's happening? Okay. It's a what? Oh, whatever, man. That just, that just sounds like something you say because you're insecure about the fact that you can't get a real keyboard. Okay. <clears throat> so, this is my timeline, right? So... We've got this little synth, synth, whatever. This is the beginning of time. Oh no, I thought it maybe was on, but it's not. That would have been cool, but it was it was muted. So, um, this right here is the beginning of time. Now he still got me. He still got me muted. The beginning of time. It didn't sound there. God spoke. Okay, you can mute it. Thank you. So there's a boom, right? God spoke. We got, we got the beginning of time here, right? So this is a big timeline, and we'll just say the wall is when it all ends, right? I don't know when that is. I'm not, I don't know, right? Potentially, no, I'm not going to go there. I was going to make a political joke, but I'm not going to go there. Um, <laughs> these are recorded, and so I can't. Uh, okay, so the wall, right, is the end of, of time. So this isn't going to be a scale, so please don't email me angry emails about, like, the scale of my timeline. Uh, but what we had early on in, in human history was Abraham. And Abraham was this guy that, that, God had, um, that God had called to himself to say, hey, Abraham, come here. I want to call you out of history, and I want you to be the beginning of my people. And God, for some crazy reason, the infinite per- perfect God, decided to enter into humanity in such a personal way to say, I want to show my glory in history through, at least in this season of history, the Old Testament, through a group of people called the Jews, the Hebrew nation, uh, Israel. I want to. All of those things are synonymous. I want to show my glory through these people. So you're going to have a nation. You're going to have kids. They're going to have kids. They're going to have kids. And these are people that I'm going to walk with, and I'm going to show favor, and I'm going to discipline, and all these things. So Abraham is like the first guy who really gets saved and anointed as the covenant of Abraham. Not the first guy who gets saved. He's the first guy who is in the line of. He is the father of of Israel. So he's saved. God tells him, you're good, you're good. And so here's Abraham, right? I'm not exactly sure what what year this was, right? But there's some people in this room that would be very definitive on what year uh, this was, but uh, I'm not one of those people. So here he is, right? Um, Then what happened is 430 years later, we're gonna call this 430 years later. 430 years later, Moses comes along and Moses gets what? The 10 Commandments, we saw the movie, he walks up, he gets the Ten Commandments, he gets the law, he gets more than just ten, he gets the law, he gets how we interact with, how to build the temple and how we are going to interact with God and how God is going to choose to dwell with his people in a temple and all these ceremonial things and all these rules of how that's going to work. That is a big deal. The law is a big deal. But what's happening in 2016 and what was happening in Galatia was there's a group of people that say, hey man, you got to do this to be saved. And so Paul makes this brilliant argument to say, what are you talking about? Abraham got saved. The law didn't even show up for 430 years. He's going to make this argument in in Galatians 3 that there's a 430-year gap. Like, God didn't design the law, the rules. He didn't design that to be the means of our salvation. That wasn't the point of it. The point of it wasn't, I mean, Abraham didn't even have the 430 years, people didn't have it. They were getting saved. They were being obedient. Have you ever thought, why, how did people get saved? I think that's a pretty legitimate question. Okay, so we believe we're saved through the blood of Christ, through faith in Jesus Christ. So if we have this timeline, if this is the Old Testament time, which is the, the part of our Bible pre Jesus, how did they get saved? They got saved the same way we get saved, they put their faith in a Messiah. They looked forward and said, look, I know I can't do this on my own. I know that even following the law, I'm going to come up short and way short. But I believe what what God has told me, that he will send one who will redeem me, who will pay for all of my junk and, and redeem me so that I might have, so I'm going to put my faith in God that you will do what you said you were going to do. And they put their faith towards the Messiah who we now on this side of history look back and say, that is our Messiah. That's how the Old and New Testament connect and are are married. Because we look back and we say, we we have a relationship with God because we look back and our Messiah has come. And he is who he said he was and he did what he said he was gonna do. And to an outsider and to somebody, if you're in this room and that's not where, you're, you're not there yet, I recognize that sounds crazy really does. That sounds just huge. And wait, what? You got, like you're, like, I maybe you never heard it that way. That is how, what we believe. That 2,000 years ago, God showed up in flesh and said, look, you guys can't do this thing yourself. I'm going to die for you. And that wrath of God for all of our sins is going to be poured out on Jesus. He's going to raise again, and that is going to be your payment to have relationship with me, so that we might enter into a covenant eternally. That's what we believe. And if you're in here and you've either never heard that, or you're just tracking, with you and you think that's insane, I think that I think that's a good place to be. I think it's thinking, what that's crazy. But I think just spinning around on a rock is crazy. I think, I think the idea that maybe we can attach some religion where I can work my way up to a holy and infinite God who's outside of time and sustains all life, like who is the creator of all things? If I believe in a creator of all things, do I really think any institution of religion or rules or following things is going to earn me enough credits to sit at the table, to worship at the altar of that God? No, I needed a God to show up where I was at. That's what's unique about Christianity. We say our God showed up to us. We've got prophets, but the prophets all point to God showed up to us. Okay. So, why the law then? The law doesn't save us, um, so why the law? Um, <clears throat> glad you asked. Verse 19. Look, at how, look how much you guys are tracking with Paul's train of thought. Verse 19. Why then the law, he asks. Good question. We just asked that question. We're tracking with you, Paul. So this section here, before that, he... Un- Paul unpacks that in a lot better detail and and more intricate ways. But he unpacks, man, Abraham is 430 years. You don't need the law. The law is what condemns you. Uh, It's not what what saves you. So why the law is what Paul asks. Well, why then the law? And then he answers. It was added because of transgressions, right, sins. It was added because of transgressions until the offspring should come to whom the promise had been made. Um, So we need to stop for a second. This is important. Why the law? The law is what reveals in us that we come up short. The law is for transgressors, transgressors and sinners like me, like throughout history, to say, hey, this reveals the litmus test of where you are. You are not good enough. You are not holy enough. You are not righteous enough to enter into the present, to come to the altar of God. You are, you are not good enough at that. And the law reveals that which pushes me towards needing a Messiah. It pushes me towards the reality, the truth and the reality. Rather than believing some lie that leads me off into the woods or leads me towards death, the law is what condemns me and it shows me, holy crap, I suck at this. It shows me I am not, I am not good enough to sit before a holy God. And that sounds like a total downer, right? That sounds like, oh man, what a beating. But the reality is it reveals us who we are. So um, one of the things that happened in, uh, in the Old Testament, I alluded to it, is the idea of the temple. And so God in the Old Temple in the Old Testament, he chose, I'm going to dwell with my people. I'm going phys- to have my presence there with the Jewish people. And so I want you to build this temple. And here is how you are going to approach the altar of that temple. And then there's this. I mean, there's a book in the Bible about like, do this, and you need to wash your hands this many times, you need to bathe, and you put on these clothes, and get it real clean. Then if you like accidentally like see a dead bird on the way to the temple, it's like, ah, do it all over again, and you gotta do this whole thing. And and it's this really intricate, important, to say, hey, he is holy. He is holy. Our God is holy. That is an adjective that I think we have lost the value. I don't think I appreciate the holiness of God. I don't think I know what that word means. Uh, I know what it's supposed to mean. I use it in sermons, But he is a holy, holy God. And there was these rules that said, hey, there is a separation here. And so you're going to do these things to kind of show, to allude to the fact that one day there will be a perfect sacrifice. One day there will be a perfect cleansing. One day it won't be these ceremonial baths that you have to do every time you try to enter. One day it will be one baptism that you will have, and then you will have that holiness given to you. The law reveals that. It shows me. It shows me the the depth of canyon that is between me and God in and of myself, the depth of a canyon that's between us. So in Jesus is how we can approach the altar. Um, Verse 24 and 25, I'm going to read it over you guys. It says, So then the law was our guardian until Christ came. The law was our guardian, talking about before Christ, until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith, pushing us to put our faith in Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. So this is how you get it. This is how you get that pass, that clothing, that righteousness to be able to approach that holy God in a relationship. Verse 26, it's on the screen. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are in Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring's heirs according to the purpose. Um, I told you we were going to see Paul's airtight case for this gospel of grace, right? Paul uses the Old Testament as this case to say, "Man, how can you say that you need the law?" for salvation. The law condemns us. Look at Abraham. Look at this timeline. It doesn't make sense. There's a 430 year gap. Why would God do that? Also, we're gonna see where we get this gospel of grace. It's right there. I love verse 27. For as many of you were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. For as many people in this room who've been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. I believe when Paul means that that word, what he's what he's talking about is for them, they were baptized. Uh, this church, we don't believe baptism is salvific, because that would be a law, right? It would be like, oh, well, I have to do this deed to be saved. Baptism is a symbol of the position that we have said, I am dead to myself. What. The passage just before tonight's sermon, what I preached last week, that we are dead to ourselves, we're submitted to him, we are immersed in him, and we are risen to new life with him. That is what baptism is a picture of. If you've never been baptized, though, but you believe you've put your faith in Christ, I would strongly, strongly, it is encouraged, it is commanded, hey, if you have put your faith in Christ, then do this as a symbol of what you have done, a symbol of that. So if you've never been baptized, talk to us afterwards. We've got several opportunities to do that coming up. Um, but that's what it looks like. So this now, in the, in the covenant we live in, in the time we live in, because of Jesus' righteousness, because 2,000 years ago, our God entered our world, our God hung on a tree and died a horrible death, rose again because of the wrath that God poured out that should have gone on me. Guys, that should have been on me. That should have been on you. But if we're in Christ, we don't get that wrath. We don't get eternal separation from him if we're in Christ. We get the grace of God because we put our faith that, yes, you are my Messiah. Not rules, not my self-righteousness. You are my Messiah, Jesus. Jesus. We're baptized, we're cleansed. That Old Testament concept of going into the temple, approaching the altar, it's so beautiful when you read the Old Testament with Jesus in mind because you read books and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a beating. All this stuff they had to do and they had to sacrifice these animals and because it shows the holiness that now Christ is the perfect sacrifice. All those things were to point to the fact of, yeah, see all this stuff and Christ is gonna conquer all of that. And then you're cleansed. You are baptized into Christ. And then, I love this, we have put on Christ. So as we approach, I hope you do. I hope you approach God. I hope you realize that this is a relationship that we're called to with the God of the universe. And as you approach this God in worship, in relationship, in your car, in prayer, and as you walk in your life, with the God of the universe, you are not walking into that altar of God if we 're going to play out that analogy in your own flesh you are you 've put on Christ, and so what that means is instead of God looking at me and, and seeing a 33 year old pastor who has has struggled on and off with lust in his life, who is prideful, crazy prideful, crazy um, uh, desires. The, the love and the affection of the world as opposed to God like instead of seeing all of the gross sin that is who I am as a as a person my tendencies my leanings my my anger my um my apathy towards the things of God and a whole bunch of sins I haven't even realized I have yet instead of seeing that bin he looks at my resume and he says okay um oh sweet you walked on water cool. You fed 5,000. That's pretty impressive. You healed a leper and you gave people sight. Oh, that's awesome, man. Sweet. That's really cool. He doesn't see my resume. I have put on Christ. So he sees Christ Jesus. Now, like, obviously he's not tricked, but he sees the righteousness of Christ on me. So all of of my resume is, is laid at the cross and I get his righteousness put on me. And that's how I approach the altar. Is it confident? Yes. Is there a level of worshipful humility? Absolutely. Because I'm not approaching him with, I did it. I work at a church, guys. I mean, if anybody deserves, it's like, if you get paid by a church, you've got to be. No. I know who I am if I'm honest and if I'm staring at truth that's really revealing truth and not just believing lies leading me towards death. I know who I am, but I still approach worship confidently because of who Jesus is. That is how our approach works as we come to the altar. Here's something else we see in this passage. We see the unity that the gospel should bring. Verse 28 says, There is neither Jew nor Greek. Remember, there is neither slave nor free. There's no male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. Listen, God desires... and always has desired for all different people to come to faith. It's always been a part of his story. Even in the Old Testament, when he had a chosen people, there's still other people that are coming to faith that aren't of the Jewish people who, who God is saving, who are putting their faith in, in this, this one true God. Um, God desired the, the church as a big C, the body of Christ, right, if we're going to use churchy language. The body of Christ, uh, it should be a place filled with diversity, right? It should be a place filled with ethnic diversity. But here's the other thing, too. It's not just ethnicity that's a diversity we should be striving for um, and certainly seeing each other through that lens that there is neither Jew nor Greek. But it's even sin patterns. This is, this is super interesting to me. So it's sin patterns. When he says Jew and Gentile, Gentiles at the time in that context Uh, I mean, that was pagans, right? Throughout history, that was people who didn't believe in the one true God. They worshiped idols and sacrificed babies to them if that was what their their pagan faith believed. And there were numerous ones. And so it's those who believe in the one true God and those who worship all kinds of other crazy stuff. He wants all of those people, all of those people, his plan was to return to him and worship him. And whatever that sin pattern was that they had, that's all level at the foot of the cross. So the person who got raised in like VBS was like every other week when you were growing up and you went to vacation Bible school and you had all the verses memorized and you grew up in a great Christian home and the person who did not have that home, the person who did not grow up in the Christian home, either because it just wasn't there or because there was darkness in your home and there was some serious brokenness in your home. And God's plan all along is to say, man, I want everyone I want all different types of ethnicities, all different. I want them to all come and submit to the one true God. There should be unity there. And here's something else too. This is God's plan, right? We just saw this timeline, right? That God even started this story from the beginning and he had Abraham. Then 430 years later, he had the law and then he had had all these things. We had had David eventually and and the new covenant and and then Jesus God is not surprised. What God has been doing throughout history, he is not surprised by your story. If you think anything in your past, if you think there's any sin patterns or things you've done, or, well, but you don't know what happened to me when I was a kid. You don't know what I did. You don't know where I've been. God is not surprised by anything in your story. Man, it's even through that lens. Look, my brother's story. Right? My, my brother's story. We look at what happened in my brother's life, and we don't see it as this surprise by God. We see it as, wow, what an awesome and powerful God. Obviously, when I get the phone call from my brother who's in jail, like, yeah, there's fear, and there's, oh my goodness, did he just ruin his life? Did he ruin his life? The reality is, God knew what he was doing. God He's in control. God walked him through that. And now what happened because of that event, God has used in a police officer's life. He's used in my brother's life. My brother has impacted other people's lives. God has done incredible things. It was never, our God is not the ambulance chaser. Our God is not the ambulance chaser that's looking at chaos in your life thinking, oh crap, I gotta, oh, what do I do here? Let me uh, fix, oh man, this is, this is bad. Our God is in control. And so what that means for you is if you're coming in to this room tonight, and you've got a story where, sure, maybe in your head you're like, yeah, okay, I know God loves me, and that's great, but realistically, whether you believe that or not, but if people knew about this, one of the ways you can test that out is confession, right? If it's, oh gosh, if people knew that I did that, if people knew I was walking in this sin, or if people knew I struggled with this or struggled with that, If that scares you to death and that you want to hide that, then that's revealing a little flag that says, I don't know that I really believe that his grace is enough for that. I don't know that I really believe that the God of the universe, who for all eternity will hold judgment over all people, he's okay with that, but I'm not willing to tell this girl in my small group or this guy who mentors me or, you know there is no story you could have walked into with this room that one surprised God. So so I'd make the argument, it's not an accident you're in this room tonight. It's not an accident you're hearing the gospel from Galatians 3 tonight. That's not an accident. God desires us to know him submit our lives and put our faith in him and walk with him and in that is life and joy and the spirit of god which produces all of these incredible fruits of the spirit that are that are not just oh okay i get a pass to go to heaven one day this is this is about stepping into eternity now with a with a god who desires to walk and, and grow with you there's nothing you could have done that was too far and when you, maybe you intellectually know that, but whenever you stop and say, but do I really believe that? What we're saying is we're saying, and the cross isn't powerful enough for my sin. When the God of the universe hung on a cross and died for, for hours, when he did that, when the wrath of God was poured on, that wasn't enough for this. I want you to hear the grace of God tonight. I want you to hear, I want you to see the grace of God tonight. I mean to see that the God of the universe desires you, has called you, I think is calling you. If, um, if you're in this room and you're thinking, man, praise God for that. I love it. I need to, I'm, I'm there. I have submitted my life to Jesus Christ. I have turned over my life to Christ. Sure, man, there are ways I need to continue doing that. I need to continue growing. Here's my challenge for, for you, for us. Um, if we really believe this, just like you heard me say, if we believe that His grace is enough, are we really willing to submit that? If you really believe that for you, who are we sharing that with? If we really believe that this is truth and that this is life and that His grace is enough, how are we loving the lost? Are there categories of sin? that we look at and we say, whoa, that one is a little too extreme. I'm going to step into these. These are taboo, but they're okay. This one, though, is a little too extreme. Are we loving people where they're at? Are we loving people the way we have been loved? Are we sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with people? Are we inviting people into a community that we know is going to be centered around the gospel of Jesus Christ? Or are we seeing people sin and saying, no, that one's too far. I had lunch yesterday with a man who um, is incredible. And he is a man man who has um, struggled and uh, given in and walked away from the Lord and just followed uh, his um, same-sex attraction and wrestled with homosexuality and at times just submitted to a lifestyle of homosexuality um, and, and was openly gay. And as I'm sitting there talking to this man, God had gotten a hold of his life way before I knew him and changed his heart, um, radically changed his heart. That guy loves Jesus. He loves other people incredibly well. He's, he's married. He's got kids now. God has changed his life. I think, honestly, I think homosexuality is one of those things that in the Christian community, I think, I think so many people are just homophobic, and we just hide behind Scripture that says, hey, that's one of the no's. But I think it's actually because we're homophobic. Look, if that's our approach to anyone in sin, then you're wrong. Then we're just doing it wrong. And as a church, if we're approaching anyone in their sin and saying, hey, whoa, this one's pretty bad, or looking at their sin from afar saying, man, that one's too far, that's not, we're not saved by our obedience, right? We talked through that. We're not saved by our obedience. Our obedience, though, and following what God wants for us is where there is life, and that is the loving thing to do. So someone who struggles with, let's say, same-sex attraction, and we see, oh, that's wrong in the book. Is it, is it just wrong because it's wrong? Do I make up arbitrary rules for my three-year-old son, Charlie, to say, hey, listen, Charlie, you're not allowed to play with your fire trucks in a clockwise motion, just a counterclockwise motion? No, because that's stupid. I make up, we, my wife and I, we set rules or aspects of his obedience that we want to see for his good, for his good. So what he's supposed to eat before he can have dessert, the amount of TV he is allowed to watch because he would just watch Paw Patrols over and over and over and over (laughs) over again. Right? And so, yes, we set boundaries, not because we're just arbitrarily, hey, look, I'm going to come up with some rules that arbitrarily, no, it's because there's life in that. So in any sin we approach, do we approach them with, whoa, man, that's wrong. That's really messed up. Well, yes, but we approach it out of love to say, I think there's something better. Look, homosexuality, if that's the one of many I'm just using as an illustration, is one that we say, hey, um, look, it's because there's something better. It's because I think God's design is better. And I've seen it in men who have walked away from that and found life and life abundantly and said, oh, my gosh. Following Christ, doing it his way is actually better. Same thing for my my sin tendencies of lust towards the opposite sex, right? The idea of God saying, look, there is a perversion here, Ben, and that's not how I've designed it to operate. I've designed it to operate in this way. Not because I'm mean and a killjoy, but I've designed it to operate in this way because it's better. Are we people who, who go and speak truth into others out of love, not out of a list to follow because we were never saved by our obedience do we introduce them to jesus christ who meets us where we're at that's the grace of god are we if, if we say yes man i've experienced that have we because i feel like if we'd experience it, i feel like for me the conviction is if i've experienced it more fully i feel like we should be sharing it more i love you guys we love you as a, as a church we want this to not just be here, knowledge of how we're saved, but belief that turns into action. We have a right perspective of truth that leads to proper action and obedience. Not because obedience saves, but because obedience is the result of a relationship with a God who knows better than I do. Let me pray over you. Father, we love you. We love you because you first loved us, and you do it so well. And, You're a perfect and holy God. Um, Lord, there is so much in Galatians 3, and we praise you for it, Lord. Would your Holy Spirit help us sift through this truth, Lord? Um, You know where each one of these people in this room, including my own heart, is at tonight, Lord. Would uh, you just allow us to process this truth, this this grace, Lord, this um, command from Paul to quit trying to add to the gospel. and. Would we be lives that would we live lives that would be really submitted to you? Um, would we have really put our faith in Jesus and not settle and continue to fight to know how to how to submit more of my life, how to be more obedient, not because I think I'm earning it, but because God, it's better because there's more joy in life in that. Would we be an encouragement to the world around us, God? Would we speak truth and not hate? Would we love people? Would we really love them? Love them well. Love them where they're at. Meet them where they're at. God, we need that to be a work of the Spirit. It's not going to work without it. We need you. In the name of Jesus.